So, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And I'm just going to go through it bit by bit. Uh, This is a story of enormous tension and significance. Here we go. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, many of you probably know that my wife Katie and I were expecting a baby right here around Christmas time. We've already had many uh, an invitation from the worship and arts team to have a live nativity. Uh, <laughs> we've decided not to do that. Um, sorry, Aiden. Sorry, crew. Um, uh, but it, it, it's got babies being born on my mind, of course. And my phone is, if you hear it ringing and I go pick it up, it might be going to the hospital. I don't know. Um, but one of the ironic things immediately that strikes me as I read verse 18 there, is that this is an account of Jesus' birth where he doesn't say hardly anything about Jesus being born. In fact, uh, in the book of Matthew, the author of Matthew, he does not really give us Mary's perspective on what happens what happened when Jesus was born. He's, he's not concerned about that. If you were to turn to the book of Luke, which we, we did a few years ago, we looked at it from Mary's perspective. Luke is enormously concerned about Mary and how she received the angel and Zechariah and the difference between those two. And that was very interesting. But in Matthew, it's all about Joseph and his experience of Jesus' birth. Now, in this first verse, in barely 25 words, Matthew paints a picture, a, a story with enormous tension. Most of it is lost on us because marriage and engagement work a little bit differently now than it did back then. So if you, for a moment, just indulge me with a bit of historical background. See, in the first century, marriages, uh, they did not consider sort of romance to be the highest value and the purpose for marriage, but they would sort of see uh, the family progress and what was an advantageous sort of couple. And so often marriages were arranged by the parents. Um, it would be, a, for our standards, a very young man and a very young woman, perhaps a 13-year-old woman and a 17, 18-year-old man, someone who had just barely begun to be able to sustain a family in that day and age. And so <clears throat> when we read about that act of sort of betrothal in verse 18, they had been betrothed, but they had not come together if you're anything like me, you read the word betrothal and you go, oh, I know exactly what that is. It's engagement. Yes and no. In those days, so betrothal, and I'm glad they don't use the word engagement because we would instantly be confused. Betrothal is and is not like engagement today. In betrothal, it was a legal, legal and binding contract that was made between a man and a woman that were to be married. And whereas today, when we, you know, we've had people married, I think in this very room, uh, or over, you know, somewhere else, we stand up and we make vows of faithfulness and support and love and all that kind of thing on the wedding day, right? And that's the day of the coming together, right? We're moving in together, all that kind of stuff. Back then, the, what we would do, all the vows and the promises and becoming husband and wife, happened at the betrothal. Okay, so they would get together, they would say, we promise to be married, we will be husband and wife. And that's why when we read in verse 18, or in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, and you notice that? Her husband. So betrothal, at betrothal, you became husband and wife. Although, this roughly one year long period of betrothal, you would barely see each other at all. You would be separated physically from the person you were going to be married to. They probably didn't know each other super well to begin with, but you would not have a bunch of contact. As you read the story, maybe like me, you're thinking, hey, why didn't Joseph just go ask Mary, hey, what's going on? 
how did you get pregnant and all that kind of stuff? Well, the parents almost certainly would not have allowed that to happen. They would certainly wouldn't have had a private moment to be able to talk to each other because of, well, the very thing that we're concerned about. How did Mary get pregnant? And so then, at the end of that year, you would have what they called the coming together, which we would call the wedding. And at the, at the coming together, um, this was uh, at a date the father would set. Here's some of these things. Um, the, the groom would be sent to go across town, and he would bring with him a big wedding party. They would go get the bride, bring her back to the, to the home that he had prepared, and just throw a big old party, a marriage feast, uh, a marriage supper. And the whole town would come together and celebrate this coming together. Um, so this couple is legally married, but not in contact with one another. Um, and then... <laughs> As, as Luke says so delicately, Mary is found to be with child. She's showing, we, we might say today. Now, keep in mind, Nazareth is a small town, even by today's standards. Maybe 200 people, maybe 400 at the most. Some of you are from towns that small. How long is a secret going to stay a secret? Not long at all. What happened? Of course, Matthew immediately, to, to keep us readers well informed, he gives us that very important detail. She's with child from the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know that there's no funny business here, but um, the town doesn't know that. Naturally, they assume that this baby came about the way all, you know, all babies come about, right? So, then whose baby is it? You can imagine the unfair slurs that were applied to Mary. She walked around town. As for Joseph, everyone was wondering, did, did Joseph find a way around Mary's father's protections of her? Was there another man involved? Uh, either way, the specter of shame has settled in upon this new and barely even formed family. And this, this is what surprised me about this story. As I read it, as I studied it, as I began to understand it, this is not primarily a story about babies and, uh, you know, stables and gifts that I can't really pronounce. <laughs> this is a story about shame and dishonor and the tension between love and freedom and divine intervention and how one person's character preserved God's plan to bring salvation to all people. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It, it would seem to most people, and to Joseph it seems at that time, he sort of had two options at this point. He could divorce her quietly, which was what he tended to think he would do, or he could divorce her loudly. The word here, put her to shame, is a bit euphemistic. Uh, it's translating the phrase, publicly expose her. Uh, it's, it's a euphemism for a horrific scene of mob justice that did happen in the first century. You might remember the story in John 8. We're not quite sure if it belongs in the Bible, but it does record something that we know happened in the first century, uh, where a woman was caught in adultery uh, and brought before Jesus, and they're preparing to put her on this public mob justice trial uh, in order to discern whether she was guilty. And if she had been, she would be accused, shamed, 
stripped, and stoned. All Joseph had to do was put the right word in the right ear, and that would be Mary's fate along with the child in her womb. And in fact, it's what would have been expected of him, frankly. It would have, it would have elevated him in the community. He would have become a more honorable, honorable man, a man of spiritual seriousness, uh, who protected the community from this problem, this shame. He would remain an eligible bachelor uh, with no doubt about whose child this was. It wasn't his. In a perverse way, uh, this would have been a solution that preserved his honor. She was guilty. He, he could have, but he did not do it. Now, this brings us to mind. We see that word there, uh, not willing to put her to shame. What is shame? Jackson Wu describes shame this way. Shame is the fear, pain, or state of being regarded unworthy of acceptance in social relationships. That's a bit uh, academic, isn't it? Shame, we know shame is different from guilt. Uh, but the two ideas are clearly related to one another. In, in some cases, shame is something we experience because of our guilt going public. We are guilty, and then we are found out, and we are ashamed that we are guilty. It's one thing to be accused or, or, or to tell a lie, to know that you've told a lie, to f have your conscience internally sort of troubled by telling a lie. You're guilty. But it's a very different thing when your lie is found out and you are exposed to your workplace or your community or your family, and they say, how could you do this? You lie to us. Shame and guilt are related, but a little bit different. Sometimes shame is a result of our guilt. But at other times, shame is a verb. Shame is something that others do to us. They shame us, not because uh, we are guilty, really, but because we simply fail to meet their often unfair expectations. Sometimes shame is something we experience because people look down on us without understanding our hearts, without getting the full story. And that's what happened to Mary. She wasn't guilty, but she was nonetheless the object of intense shame. Every one of us has experienced this kind of shame too. At times, we experience shame because of things we've done wrong that go public. Uh, at times, like Mary, we're the subject of unfair scrutiny, uh, unloving scrutiny. Can you imagine Mary walking around Nazareth? The whispers behind her back, the unkind comments, the questions that hang in the air, the conversations that awkwardly stopped as soon as she joined the circle, the sideline glances. Maybe you too, maybe even recently, have experienced this kind of shame. Maybe, uh, maybe you skipped Thanksgiving or you wanted to, or you wish you could skip Christmas uh, because you know um, that people are going to have a secret hidden level of shame for you because you haven't accomplished what this other family member has accomplished and you really wish you were doing better, or your marital status, or your body, or your... Shame is personal. Shame is powerful. Shame is painful. And so Joseph resolves to divorce her quietly, without public accusation, without any defense of his honor. He will hide her shame, even though it costs him something. The 
shame will follow him as well. The questions will follow him as well. What happened there? Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Let's pause there. In a moment, in just a few words, the stakes are raised immeasurably. Joseph, son of David. What does this mean? Why does that matter? Well, a thousand years before Jesus was born, God came to King David and made him a promise. In 2 Samuel 7, it says, and this is the word of the Lord to King David, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is, die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, for centuries, God's people wondered when this sort of shadowy, mystical figure, this king who was the son of David, would come and establish a a kingdom that was not constrained by space or time or nationality or race or whatever, uh, but a kingdom that would last forever. Uh, Keep in mind, too, if you look at the beginning of the book of Matthew, it's not far from where you are. In Matthew 1.1, it says that this book is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And yet, how will Jesus be the son of David, the fulfillment of God's promise to to restore his people, to bless the world, to, to usher in an everlasting kingdom of blessing and justice, if Joseph, who is Jesus' connection to King David, resolves to divorce Mary? The plot thickens. Suddenly, this is not just a story about a young man choosing whether or not to dishonor his young and apparently unfaithful wife. The promises of God seem to hang on this decision. At least that's how Matthew presents it to us. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not fear. The angel said, do not fear. And this is crucial. Because before this, we assume, right, there are two options. Divorce her quietly, divorce her loudly. We could say the first option was to reflect her shame. Mary was an object of shame. And what Joseph could do is he could say, this is your fault. I'm going to expose you. I'm going to reflect your shame right back at you. This is yours to bear. Option number one. Uh, Secondly, he could hide her shame by divorcing her quietly. He could reflect her shame, or he could somehow hide her shame. But now the angel suggested a third option. And this option is so preposterous that it wasn't even on the table before, but now apparently it is. He could stay with her. He could go through with it. He could marry her. That is, rather than reflecting her shame back onto her or hiding her shame, he could embrace her shame. He could absorb her shame. He could join her and share her shame. Of course, we readers know, know, know and now, now Joseph knows that this child was not the result of Mary's infidelity. But the town doesn't know. And I mean, can you, can you imagine trying to communicate that? Oh, we know she's pregnant. Uh, 
it, it was the Holy Spirit. Okay. And this, this wouldn't stop when they were married. And, and many, again, from a, from a small town, and especially you think of the ancient world, a, a, a stain on your reputation, on your name like this, didn't just follow you for a handful of years or till you skipped town. It follows you for a lifetime. It could follow you for generations. Isn't God asking too much of Joseph? But wait, there's more. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, when you or I read this sentence, we miss something that would have astonished Matthew's readers. Uh, as much as parents today give a lot of thought to the names that we give our children, don't we? We do. The significance of our names and the significance of naming a child is microscopic in comparison to what it was in the ancient world. When a child was born into a Hebrew home in the first century, the child wouldn't be named for the first eight days of its life. You remember the story of John the Baptist and how... Uh, and how his father was not able to speak. Zechariah was not able to speak until they were having a naming. And they said to the father, what should we name the child? And it wasn't until the eighth day. Remember this? And so what would happen, eight days after the child's birth, uh, it was given a name. It was named. And, and to be named in the family was to be accepted into the family. And this wasn't just, uh, I remember naming my child, probably like many of you parents. How did I name him? Well, I just said, your name is this, and I wrote it on the thing at the hospital or whatever. In that day, the father would raise the child. This is where we get that phrase, actually, raise a child. They would raise the child, and as if making a sacred pronouncement over this little child, they would induct that child into the family and endow upon that child a name, a name that marked that child in a place of security and safety in the family. You belong. You belong to us. It was the father saying solemnly and conclusively over that child, you are mine. I accept you. The angel was not simply recommending a cute name for a baby or even simply telling Joseph something incredible about the nature and destiny of that child, although he was. The Lord was commanding Joseph to take that child that was not his own and treat it as if it were his own. To bring him in, to claim him, to father him, to accept him, to raise him, to nurture him, to treat him as if he were his own son. To become husband to a spouse that he had every reason to reject. To become father to a child that he had every reason to turn his back on friends. If you and I were going to know the promise of God's salvation, a teenager in a backwater town in Palestine was going to have to embrace lifelong shame. Why was this necessary? I can think of a lot better ways for the king of creation to enter into the world than into a story like this. Can you? A little more fanfare? A little less suspicion? Matthew immediately tells us why it's necessary. In verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they 
shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We still, we have to wonder, couldn't he have been born to a nice suburban couple, you know, married for years, faithful church people, had a weird surprise from God? Wow, you're, we're going to be parents of the Savior. Exciting. Get rid of all the suspicious glances, all the murmurs, all the conversations that stop when they enter the room. Couldn't there have been a way for them to sort of make public, uh, announce to the important people and across the important channels? You know, maybe one of those, you go to a football game and they've got like a banner behind an airplane. Jesus is not the result of unfaithfulness. Born of the Spirit. Don't worry. God, God's good at communication. I don't know if you knew that. Incredible at it. He, he knows that. He can tell the shepherds all about it by sending a whole bunch of angels. Couldn't he send a whole bunch of angels to the town of Nazareth to make sure that, his babe, that Jesus wouldn't be born in shame? The answer is, of course, there was another way. There were many other ways. But it wasn't God's way. This is a story about shame and dishonor divine intervention, the tension between love and freedom, and how one person's character can ensure that salvation would go forward to the whole world. God chose shame for his son. He chose it. Why did the Savior need to come in shame? Because we are a people deserving of shame living in a world full of shame. And Jesus is a servant king who came to lower himself into our mess. Even if you're here and you, you would not recognize God's word as an authority in your life, you, you already know this is true. Consider this. If the whole of your life, every dark moment, were to be projected on the screen one minute from now, we, would you want to stay in the room? Not a single one of us. <laughs> we would run for the door. I would run for the door. Not just, not just our, the things we've done, but the, the things we've thought. The, the thing, our gut reactions, our emotions. Every single one of us would want to leave the room. Even by our own standards, we are not people of honor. We are people of shame. And yet God's word teaches us that every day we live before God's face. And he sees all that we do, all that we feel, all that we are. And just as there were three ways that Joseph could respond to Mary's shame, so also there were three ways that God could respond to ours. He could reflect our shame right back onto us. Give us what we deserve, what we had coming to us. Reflect back onto us the shame that our actions and desires had earned. He could hide our shame. He could slowly walk away, divorce us quietly. Or he could do what the angel commanded Joseph to do. He could absorb your shame. He could join your shame. He could marry himself to your shame. He could adopt your shame. 2,000 years ago, Joseph held up a little baby that did not look like him. And he already knew that to embrace this child into his family would mean embracing a lifetime of shame. 
to give this child all of the benefits, all of the blessings that his rightful son deserved would cost him dearly. It would cost him all of his reputation. It would cost him weeks and days and years of misunderstanding and confusion and shame. But he knew that that son was born of the Spirit, and so he embraced him. This is why Jesus had to come in shame. If we would become part of God's family, if he would, as it were, raise us up, as we know he did, for each one of us who belong to Jesus, raise us up, hold us before his gaze, a child that doesn't look like him, and say, I want to make this child mine. It would cost him much more than a few weird glances and a little bit of an awkward dinner party. It would cost him everything. We know that Jesus' shame didn't start and end with his birth. It reached a crescendo on the cross where Jesus was stripped, where Jesus was exposed publicly, where Jesus experienced the shame that all of our lives deserve. The cross was not just an execution. It was a public shaming. Jesus on the cross experienced all of the shame that all of our horrific videos deserve. And he shows it. If we are going to be treated not as second-class citizens in Jesus' family, but as a full-fledged daughter, son of God, then Jesus would have to lose his good reputation. Well-earned good reputation. He would have to be misunderstood and rejected and shamed. Did you know that on the cross, Jesus treated his honor so that he could take your shame. And he gives us, do you know what the opposite of shame is? The opposite of shame is not sort of a blank look. It's not uh, silence as you walk into a room because we don't have anything to say about you. No, the opposite of shame is honor. The opposite of shame is honor. Do you know when you come into the room as we all will one day to see the Lord? He will treat us with the honor that Jesus deserves and not with the shame that our lives deserve. Did you know that as you recall the moments of your greatest shame, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit? Not away from you, but toward you? As you recall the moments of pain, whether it's because of something you did or something someone did to you, Jesus himself wants nothing more than to stand beside you and with you. He wants to whisper in your ear, time and time again, I have already absorbed the sting of this shame. Let me absorb it for you again right now. humiliating and embarrassing moments of shame, Jesus has not been slowly backing away so that he is not somehow considered guilty by association with you. Jesus has been getting as close as you will let him so that he can join you and absorb your shame for you. Jesus wants in to your shame and he has paid the admission price to your shame cost him everything, and he thought it was a bargain. Now, what should this mean for us today? 
first of all, let's commit right now to being a place where we refuse to reflect shame onto one another. If Jesus has made the move of absorbing shame, then we can do it too. We can decide that when we see things, when we hear things, when whatever it happens to be, that we make the Christ-like move of drawing near, of understanding, and of helping, rather than separating and reflecting or passing it on. Secondly, let's resolve to join Jesus in his shame. Now, just as when Jesus died, he took the sting of death away, that is that death no longer means the end of life, the end of meaning and purpose and value, but it means the entry gate into all of those things, into the Lord's presence, but we still go through death, right? Uh, So also, Jesus has taken away the sting of shame, but there is still shame that God has called us to join him in. In fact, in every place, in every culture, in every nation, everywhere, uh, that Jesus and his name, joining him, has meant joining in shame. When Jesus is truly understood, there inevitably comes shame. Misunderstanding, you know what this is like. Misunderstanding, people think, oh, you go with Jesus, then you must be this. You must be that. That's okay. This is not the only time and place where that has happened. Jesus knows about it. He experienced it. And he wants us to join him in that shame too. Let's bear the shame for being Christians. That's okay. Maybe around this time of year, uh, I know for many people it's a good time to be invited to church. Maybe open to that. Uh, come to a Christmas Eve service or something like that. Um, I know we, I think we have some cards and stuff that you can invite people to. Maybe it's shame that keeps you from doing something like that. My challenge to you, join Jesus in his shame. It will be okay. He will be with you. The sting will not be there. He has removed the sting of shame. Uh, the opposite of shame, 30, the opposite of shame is not silence and not a clean slate. The opposite of shame is honor. Honor. So, Doug does a great job of this. Let me honor him. Uh, But let's point out in one another the things that are honorable about one another. It's so easy for us to meditate on one another's weaknesses and think about what's wrong with this place or that group or whatever it happens to be. What if instead we focused on, and especially if we honored, we socially exalted. We said, this person is doing a great job. Look at this. This is great. Here, if you want to have enormous influence in people's lives, and you, you can build a whole ministry on these four words. Are you ready for them? Okay? And, and these four words, most people haven't heard them in a week, at least. Probably can remember just about every time you've heard them, and uh, are just dying to hear them. Are you ready for these four words? Okay? I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Point out in people the character of God that you see in them, that they reflect back to you. Point it out to them. I'm proud of you. Way to go. You hardly ever hear that, do you? Let's be a place where we build one another up by honoring what is honorable in one another. Jesus came to make sure that we never have to wonder how God actually feels about us. So let's make sure we do the same courtesy for one another and honor one another. Folks, Jesus has joined us in our shame. This Christmas story, like I said, not simply a story about animals and cute things and presents, a story about Jesus coming to be misunderstood, 
to be guilty by association, to, to join and absorb our shame. So let's become a place that reflects that beautiful reality. Uh,